Well, good morning. Hope all of you are safe and sound at home as you are tuning in uh, this morning. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be taking a look at verses 21 to 26 uh, this morning. Now, we're continuing our sermon series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Pastor Aaron closed his sermon uh, talking about the kind of righteousness that God requires uh, that should exceed that of the merely righteous or the Pharisees. And today's passage begins a series of Jesus' teaching that describes then what that righteousness looks like. And if you were to kind of read on in your Bibles, you'll notice that Jesus begins each of these teachings with the words, you have heard it was said. And he takes what was said and contrasts that by saying the words, but I say to you. And so it should be clear to us that in these teachings, Jesus is saying, you all misunderstood and were mistaught the teachings of Scripture, so let me now come in and correct it uh, for you. And it's important to note that here in these teachings, what the people heard, the things that were taught to them, were actually not in Scripture or were distortions of it. And so Jesus' corrections that we see today and in the weeks to come were not actually corrections of the Bible, but were corrections of the popular teaching of the day. And you know, when as modern readers we read these teachings, it's easy for us to say, you know, thank God that those people got it wrong back in the day, but we got it all figured out now. But really, if we're not careful, we'll be committing what C.S. Lewis called the chronological snobbery. And some of you may recall uh, Pastor Aaron pointing this out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, But it's the kind of snobbery that looks back at the previous generations and think that we've got everything figured out now because we now live in the modern age. But here's the problem. The truth is, that the generations that will come after us will be looking at our generation and think the same thing, right? They'll say, you know, those old guards back in the day had it all wrong, but thank God that here in our day we have it all figured out. And so really the problems that uh, Jesus faced and confronted head on thousands of years ago are the same kind of problems uh, that we may have to confront today. So what Jesus' teaching shows us is that we're in a constant need of reformation. Because really, there's always going to be a, a, a kind of momentum in all of us to move away from Scripture and think that we have it all figured out. But the call for the church time and time again, age after age, generation after generation, is to constantly dive deeper into it. And it's so important because far too many of us, we assume we know what Scripture says and we assume we know what Scripture means without actually knowing it. And so keeping that in mind, let's with fresh eyes uh, read today's passage together. It says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. Now here in this passage, Jesus begins by essentially saying, you may have heard that murder is what will make you liable to judgment, but I tell you, he says, that being angry with someone will make you just as liable to judgment. Now, having said that, here's the central question that we're going to ask this morning. Why is anger such a big deal? Why is anger such a big deal? How can Jesus compare anger to murder? And so for the rest of our time together, let's unpack this question. And we'll do that under three points, uh, three headings. First, we're going to take a look at what anger is. Secondly, uh, we'll take a look at why anger is so dangerous. And lastly, how anger can be redeemed. What anger is why it's so dangerous, and how it can be redeemed. And so first, what is anger? Now, if you are thinking through this carefully as we were reading, you may be saying, wait, not all anger is bad. You may be saying, well, there's righteous anger that we should all feel when we see injustice. And you're right. Because we're shown time and time again that God himself is shown to be uh, angry. And so at this point, we have to say it's either that God himself is sinning and therefore should be liable to judgment, or what we understand from this text rightly is that not all anger is created equal. And so first, let me define what anger is. Now, I have to say in this point, I was helped tremendously by a book called Good and Angry uh, by a scholar named David Pallison. And in this book, he says, anger is simply looking at something and saying, that's not right. It's looking and saying, that's not right. And then he goes on to give us a couple of truths about all anger, righteous or unrighteous, just or unjust. And uh, I adapted some of his points here to bring it to you. And the first thing that we find out about anger, all anger is first born out of love. It's born out of love. And so think about it. Anytime you feel angry, it's because there's something or someone that is threatening that which you value, threatening that which you love. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, we see that God is provoked to anger because of idolatrous leaders, unfaithful, sinful leaders that are leading his people astray. And even in the New Testament, we see that Jesus himself is provoked to anger because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were supposed to be leading his people were placing heavy, unnecessary, legalistic burden on his people. And so for us, if you think about it, let's say you have a child and your child is being bullied. You are provoked to anger, why? because you value your child and you love your child. Or let's say if you're driving your car and, 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 and a car swerves into your lane, you're angry because you value your safety. 
Right? If you're put down at work by your supervisor unnecessarily, you're angry. Why? Because you value your dignity. And so a moment of anger always reveals that which you value, that which you've placed uh, your love in. Right? So the first, anger is born out of anger. But the second thing that we see is that anger is always born out of our desire uh, for justice. Like psychologists for years have been calling anger a moral emotion, a moral emotion. So every time you're, you're angry at something or someone, you're making a moral judgment. It's an emotion that arises in response to perceived transgressions. And so in the Bible, we see that God is provoked to anger by the sins of the people. Where there have been uh, transgressions to his moral law, he is then uh, provoked to anger. And this is fundamental also to who we are. Right? Think about a child who complains and whines and says, you ne- you, Mommy and Daddy, you never give me what I want. Right? What is a child doing? The child might be misguided. Right? They might be completely delusional in their understanding of the world and lacking an appreciation for the intents of their parents. But in their heart of hearts, the child is what? Crying out for justice. He or she has seen a transgression of what ought to be and is crying out against it. So when you're at the grocery store and you see that a cashier, for example, is being treated harshly, by someone, you're provoked to anger, even though you may have no uh, personal ties to the cashier, right? That person may hold no relational value to you, but there's something in you that is provoked to anger at the transgression that is being uh, committed. See, this is why uh, what drives us to social action when we see systemic transgressions as well, right? When we cry out for the rights of the unborn, or when we uh, work to speak out against systemic racism, there's something in us that says there's a transgression that is being committed here, and there's an emotional response that arises out of us that says this is not right. See, our anger is kindled when we see injustice. It's a moral emotion that is born out of our desire for justice, and we say that's not right. And so putting those two things together, anger being born out of love, anger being born out of our desire for justice, here's what we get. Ultimately, our anger actually points us to the love and the justice of God himself. See, this is why God is provoked to anger, because God is a God of love and God is a God of justice, And what the Bible tells us is that as image bearers of God, we bear those same attributes in us. We desire for love and we desire for justice. And that's what we are moved by. See, in Christianity, because of this doctrine of the image of God, we can say that there is room for righteous, meaningful anger. Because it's a reminder that the world is not all that should be and therefore has the potential and the power to point us to a hope towards a world that could be. A world in which everything wrong is made right. 
right? So there's absolutely room for righteous and meaningful anger. But having said all of this, I'm sure you can now see where anger can go wrong. Right, if your uh, value system, if that which you love, and if your moral system is out of order. Right, so for example, let's take the case of a child who's crying out against the injustice of not getting what he wants. Right, he sees injustice, but here's the problem. It's not unjust for the parents to keep him from doing whatever he wants. His morality is out of whack, and why is that? And here we get to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is that at the moment, at the moment of his anger, the person, the thing that the child valued the most, loved the most, was himself. See, because of his love for himself, he's essentially blinded to what is ultimately right or wrong, and his desire for justice is misplaced. You see, a just outcome that he desired would be something that would not only be destructive for him, but potentially for others around him, right? We see this all the time with children that are only given what they want all the time, right? They're they're destructive not uh, only for themselves, but for others around them. And here is where we get to the heart of what distinguishes, what separates a righteous anger from an unrighteous one. That at the heart of it, righteous anger has the love of God and neighbor as the source. And unrighteous anger has the love of self as the source. Now let me say that again. At the heart of it, righteous anger has the love of God and neighbor as its source. But unrighteous anger has the love of self as the source. So that's what anger is. And this is how we distinguish unrighteous anger from a righteous one. Now, we just define what anger is, but we have to ask the question, why is it so dangerous? Why does Jesus compare anger with murder? So let's look at the second point. Let's look at why anger is so dangerous. Now here, let's look at uh, verse 22. This is Jesus speaking. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, here's what Jesus is doing. He begins by saying, Anyone who is angry will be liable to judgment. But then he begins to develop that idea to give us a picture of what anger is actually doing in the next two sentences, is to insult someone and to, to call someone a fool. Now, what do those things mean and what do they tell us? Well, <clears throat> those two words, uh, the word insult and fool, don't really kind of carry the effect uh, that the words in their original language uh, do, but the word insult in the Greek is the word raka, raka which literally means nothing. And the word fool is the Greek word more, which if you get to the root word is where we get the English word moron, moron. And so it could say, keeping those things in mind, that whoever dismisses his brother as nothing, whoever nothings somebody or treats them as non-human, Jesus would say, will be liable to the council. 
And whoever says moron to somebody will be liable to the hell of fire. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying whether if you you lay your hands on somebody to take their life or you dismiss somebody out of hand, treating them as if they don't exist or as if they are sub or even non-human, or if you insult someone's faculties and call them moron or idiot or worthless, you're liable to the fires of hell. Now, what is Jesus doing here? He is highlighting the fact that Christianity has the highest view of human dignity compared to any other worldview. And all of this comes down to Bible's understanding of human beings as created uh, in the image of God or in the likeness of God, as we mentioned earlier. And so, to dehumanize another person, whether by taking their life by force or dismissing them or insulting their faculties, is a direct affront to the God whose image is represented in that human being. And that's why unrighteous anger is so dangerous. Because the kind of anger that has the love of self as the center is always the kind of anger that is willing to see the people that get in the way of your flourishing as dispensable. Do you remember the uh, story of Jonah? If you recall in the Old Testament, Jonah was a prophet that was called by God to preach the gospel of grace to a wicked nation called Nineveh. What we find in the story is that Jonah refuses to, to do that, so he goes the other way. And after this whole ordeal of getting swallowed by a giant fish and getting spit out, he, what does he do? He reluctantly goes to Nineveh to preach. And to his surprise, we find that the people of Nineveh actually repent and receive God's forgiveness. And seeing that, we find that Jonah's angry. Now, why is he angry? Because at that moment, to Jonah, God's standard of grace upset his standard of righteousness. His love for self and his love for his own righteousness exceeded that of his love for God and therefore his image bearers. And if you remember, towards the end of that book, God uh, makes a plant uh, to shoot up, if you remember, to shield him uh, from the scorching heat. And when that plant withers, we see that Jonah's angry again. And God takes that opportunity to rebuke him. And hear what God says here. He says, you pity the plant You pity the plant. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons, my image bearers, who do not know their right hand from their left? See, Jonah was so clouded by his love for himself and his righteousness that he refused to see the people of Nineveh as precious image bearers of God. All he saw were a group of people that deserved God's judgment and deserved to be wiped out. But see, this is what anger does to all of us. And it's permeated our current moment 
And I'm saddened to say much of our churches as well. Right? When we see politicians that we disagree with, we no longer see them as precious image bearers of God. We see them as a collection of what we consider to be their evil ideology. Right? When we see someone cutting us off on the road, we don't see them as precious image bearers of God. We see them merely as a threat to our safety and our sense of righteousness when it comes to road etiquette. When we see our loved one even, wanting some of our precious time so little that we have. We see them not, at that moment, we see them not as precious image bearers of God, but we see them as a threat to our comfort. We see them as a threat to our productivity. See, you may be really good at holding in a grudge. You may be really good at the moment of your anger dismissing it as no big deal. But see, even if you were to hold yourself back from hurling the kind of insults in a fit of rage, in that moment, you see, Jesus takes us from murder all the way down to the heart. Because in that moment, you are cutting down their humanity in your heart. And Jesus looks at that and says, be careful, for you are liable to the hell of fire. See, God takes anger so seriously because he takes the dignity of humanity so seriously. He imbued his glorious image into his people, whether they are born or yet to be born. Of all people, of all ethnicities and cultures, of all political persuasions, whether they are able or disabled, Every single person that you come across, the Bible tells us, is an image bearer of God. And unrighteous anger towards anyone is not just an affront to them, but an affront to the glorious God whose image they bear. And that's why it is so dangerous. And so when you're angry with someone, here's a good question to ask. You know, what do I want for that person as a result of this anger that I'm experiencing? Do you want them to right their wrongs? Do you want them to be restored? Do you want to move towards them in reconciliation? Do you want to accept them as if they were your own? Or is your response in your heart of hearts to want them to just go away? Is your desire for them to get hurt? Do you want them to get annoyed? Do you want them to be embarrassed and to be proven that they are wrong and that you are right? See, if that's what you're experiencing in your heart, that's probably a good sign that you're operating out of unrighteous anger. And Jesus would say, watch the state of your heart for you're liable to judgment. Now, at this point, if you're anything like me, you'd know that sometimes it gets really hard to suss out your motives, right? We're a mixed bag. And I know that for myself, every single time I feel angry, I'd like to think that I'm, that I'm angry with a righteous anger. But I know that if I'm being honest, 
it's almost always an element of unrighteous and unjust anger that is mixed in with the righteous and a just one. And so with all of these mixed motives, what are we to do? And if this is true of us, almost every single time we get angry, how can anger be redeemed? So for that last point, uh, let's look at how anger can be uh, redeemed. Now really, it's, it, it, Jesus gets really interesting here. So let me read for you uh, from verse 23 down to 26. Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, now this is a worship context here, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there's a worship setting. But second, there's a court setting. Because Jesus says, come to, uh, um, He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, in both the worship setting and court setting, in each instance, what we find is that what Jesus is saying, if there's someone who's got a reason to be angry with you, go be reconciled to them. Right? That's what Jesus is saying. Now here's what's interesting about these verses. With everything that we've talked about in terms of what anger is and why it's so dangerous, you would think that Jesus would say, if you are angry, then you better be a good Christian. You better deal with it in your heart. Work that out. Right? Go, go forgive the person that is angering you and be reconciled to them. You better be a good Christian. You better be a moral person. No, Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, if someone's got a reason to be angry with you, quickly go and be reconciled to them. Now, why does Jesus put it this way? See, Jesus is such a masterful communicator. Right? He's an expert at getting his point across. And he's such a surgeon into uh, the heart of men and women. Because here's what he does. Jesus flips the script to show that the only way in which you're going to heal that anger in your heart and redeem it for good is if you know that you're no better than the one you're angry at. He's saying, stop pointing the camera at others. Point it to your own heart. See, here's how a theologian Miroslav Volf put it. He says, once we accept the appropriateness of God's wrath, it's condemnation and judgment. There is no way of keeping it out there reserved for others. We have to bring it home as well. I originally resisted the notion of a wrathful God because I dreaded being that wrath's target, and I still do. I knew I couldn't just direct God's wrath against others as if it were a weapon I could aim at targets I particularly detested. It's God's wrath, not mine. The wrath of the one and impartial God, lover of all humanity. If I want it to fall on evildoers, I must let it fall on myself. And elsewhere, he also says that the reason why we can handle the sins of others while we tolerate ours is because, and you would say, I exclude the enemy from the community of humans and myself from the community of sinners. 
Do you see what he's getting at here? Jesus doesn't deal with our unrighteous anger by saying, yeah, those people out there that believe these things, act a certain way, say these things, right? I know they're terrible. And you're fully in your right to be angry, but you know, I want you to forgive those old, poor old sinners as the better person. Don't slander them online or to others because, you know, you know better. No, Jesus says, you worry about you. Check your heart, check your beliefs, check your behavior, check your speech first. Because when you can no longer exclude yourself from the community of sinners and exclude your enemy from the community of humans, that's when reconciliation is possible. And that's when the redemption of your anger becomes possible. See, church, if your heart is guided by repentance, then every single time you're angry with someone for what they said they did, or for what they said or what they did, you may be angry for their sins, absolutely. But you always, always see yourself in their sins as well. Because you'll know that you're no better. And what does that do? And what does that do to your anger? It humanizes. It humanizes your anger as you humanize them. And you know, once you see them as human beings, as precious image bearers of God, it's impossible to have the kind of anger that Jesus compares to murder. So here's the call for our church today. Will you and I Make the decision today to look inside our own heart and choose to see the human being in our worst enemy. See, Jesus certainly did. Right? How did, how did he deal with our sins? Even though every single one of us deserves God's judgment for our unrighteous anger that dehumanizes others in our hearts, what did he do with our sins? What did he do with our unrighteous anger? He absorbed it himself. See, in the Gospels, we see Jesus looking to the crowds who were jeering at him, mocking him, spitting at him, crucifying him. What does he do? Jesus absorbs their anger and looks to God and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So Jesus absorbed our unrighteous anger, but what else did he do? In his prayer, at Gethsemane. Jesus asked God the Father three times to let the cup pass from him. Now the cup in the Bible represented God's wrath. But what does he say? Jesus says no. Essentially he says no, I will drink the cup of your wrath. I will drink deep your righteous indignation, anger, and wrath upon sinners myself so that these sinners may be able to drink deep from the fountain of your mercy and your grace. And he goes all the way to the cross. And on that cross, he absorbs, he takes upon himself God's righteous 
wrath. He took it all upon himself. And when I think about this, I, I think about this quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And I, and I mentioned this quote in passing a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's so appropriate uh, for us to quote this in full in the context of this passage. So let me read it for you. It's lengthy, uh, but I think it's worth the read. Here's what Martin Luther King Jr. says. Jesus said, Love your enemies that you may be children of your Father who is in heaven. Of course, you say, all this about loving enemies is not practical. Life is a a matter of getting even, of hitting back, of dog-eat-dog. Maybe in some distant utopia, the idea will work, but not in the hard, cold world in which we live. My friends, we have followed the so-called practical way for a long time now. Time is cluttered with the wreckage of communities which surrendered into hatred and violence. And listen to what he says. He says, we are going to follow another way. We will not abandon our righteous efforts. With every ounce of our strength, we will continue to rid the nation of the incubus of segregation. But we will not, in the process, relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love while abhorring segregation. Or maybe in the language of our passage, while being angry at segregation. We will love the segregationist. This is the only way to build the beloved community. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will continue to love you. We cannot obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as it is to cooperate with good. But throw us in jail. We will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community and beat us and we will still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down. Church, we are living in an age that is filled with anger and hatred. Let our call here at Grace Church be to wear down the anger, to wear down the anger as those who have been loved and forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, let us live out Jesus' words in the Sermon of the Mount so that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words that you've given to us through your son Jesus of what anger is and why it's so deadly to our hearts and to those around us. And God, if we're being honest, that unrighteous anger resides in every single one of us. And so God, we ask that you would turn our hearts and our minds towards you for what you have done through your son Jesus on the cross to have absorbed all of our unrighteous anger so that we may be filled with the love, grace, and mercy 
of the king of the universe. And God, may we live out the values of our king as we look to speak out against, stand up against the injustices that we see in our day with an anger that is appropriate, righteous, and just, even as we look to the restoration of those who are perpetrating that injustice in our world. And so God, in that way, move us, God, uh, by the truths and the power of the gospel out into our world. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.